Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today we have Craig Fuller, founder and CEO of Freight Waves, CEO of Flying Magazine, increasingly a magazine tycoon. And this was a really fun conversation. We hit on a wide range of media topics that are frequently discussed on this show. So we get into content commerce, some of the early observations that Craig had when he was building out Freight Waves, which is very much a software data business with a media empire sitting around it. We get into what it's like to fundraise for a media business or the challenges associated with fundraising for a media business and why the market doesn't put a value on audiences. Craig has found an opportunity with some of these niche audiences. And that brings in the second half of our conversation where we get into his playbook with buying up niche magazines around things like private aviation and boating and what he's been able to do, why it's so important to capture the full audience base and some of the fun projects that he has been tying in around those audiences. So again, this is a wide-ranging conversation with someone who has taken a very interesting approach coming as a practitioner in some of these markets, in the freight market, as a pilot himself, as someone who's been around the boating world, and how he's taken some of those interesting lessons as a practitioner, applied them into building businesses around them. So please enjoy this conversation with Craig Fuller. All right, Craig, we are excited to have you here. I am personally excited to have you here as someone who has a history and continues to cover an area of the world, an area of the economy that I love, and that is transportation. I wanted to start there because you have this rich family background in transportation, and you worked in the business of transportation for a very long time. And then you transitioned into what is this hybrid of media, but very much software as well. And I'm curious about that transition. And I think a lot of people focus on the media. You have this big software piece to it. What was the original insight that you had when you started Freight Waves? Was it the software side of things? Was it the media side of things? Was it them together? Maybe just talk us through the mindset that you had when you were launching the business day one. So I had no media background. In fact, if you'd asked me 10 years ago if I'd be in media, I would have thought you were nuts because... It was not on my list of businesses that I thought that I would A, enjoy, and B, that I would be good at. But we got to media in an indirect way. So the original thesis for what's now Freightways was to create a futures market based on the trucking industry. So trucking as an industry, as a commodity, 
It's priced like a commodity. It's fungible like a commodity. But there is no commodity marketplace. There is no futures associated with the industry. So the original thesis for Freightways was to build a commodity, a tradable instrument based on the U.S. trucking market. And we actually went through the process of launching that and ultimately did launch it. But along the way, we realized that in order to build a commodity marketplace, think of oil or think of wheat or gold or anything that's traded, even crypto, even a modern take of this, is that you have really two components that exist in those industries. One is you have high frequency data or data that reflects so that speculators and traders understand what's happening in the market in a real time basis. And you have news and information and content that's providing context to what's happening. So ultimately, to make a market, if you're building a tradable instrument, you need information. And at the time we created FreightWaves, there were certainly media businesses that provided context to global shipping markets or even trucking in that matter. But they operated within a week or month long lags. And so these were based on print cycles. There was no real time information. I grew up in the CNBC Bloomberg world where I understood and had the benefit of like real time information about trading stocks that just didn't exist in trucking. So we set out to create the media business really to serve our futures market, thinking that, okay, if we're going to create this market and create trading activity and liquidity, then we need to make sure that everyone knows what's happening in a real time basis. And so we created the media business and we created the data business to serve that animal. And what we ended up discovering along the way is that there was a lot of demand just for information because the market had been starved for what was happening on a neoliberal time basis. Can you actually talk a little bit about when you had that observation? Was it part of the fundraising process? Was it part of trying to sell the futures market as a product or get liquidity into the system? It's observation that makes a lot of sense. But I'm particularly curious in your piece of the story in terms of when you had that observation and how you went into launching the media business, because they do require different DNAs, I think, just in terms of the personality types and the product types and what you're ultimately doing. So futures and data were pretty obvious to us pretty early on. In fact, if you go back and look at our early pitch decks, we were talking about the fact that data was going to be a core component. We thought it was trading data, like tick data bid-ask spread data that we were going to be commercializing. But what we realized is that there was this whole development and desire around fundamental data, which is really data that is not about the trading instruments themselves, but more about what's happening in the physical market. And so we realized pretty quickly, in fact, I ended up talking to some folks that worked at, now it's S&P, but IHS, some of my early advisors that had worked around the whole financial ecosystem, because I recruited folks that have been at Bloomberg, at S&P, at IHS, as advisors at Reuters, and said, how do you build this market? And what kept coming up was the need for data, for information. And one of the things that we looked at heavily was what happened in the power market when electricity was traded. And there was all these instruments out there to measure power plant production. Companies like Genscape is an example of that. We looked at the ocean shipping, the bulk commodity shipping market, which is different than the containerized freight market. And there were tracking devices on global ships that provided locations. You can actually see this. It really plays out a lot in geopolitical circles now with what's happening in the Red Sea is people are tracking all the ship locations. And traders were using that information that was used for 
other purposes, largely geopolitical purposes, we're using that information to understand commodity flow. The recurring frame on the data side was that, hey, does this exist in trucking? You talk about it being the backbone of the U.S. economy, but does it really exist in trucking? And the answer was sort of. A, there is no public clearinghouse for this information, but B, the government is in the process of mandating these electronic logging devices where every truck in America will have an electronic logging device, but there is no clearinghouse. And unlike the air industry and the ocean industry, it's not as if this information is you're able to get it off the transmitters on these trucks. So you have to effectively go out to the software vendors to get it. So we went out and bought all this aggregated data. In fact, when we first started talking to all of the companies that had this data, and there's hundreds of these platforms in there, what we realized is there's a couple of hundred companies across the industry that actually have all of this data because they're software platforms that serve thousands of companies. And so we started talking to them about basically buying their anonymized and aggregated data. And they were very confused because nobody had ever wanted this data. In fact, we were told that a lot of the data was deleted off their systems the same day. Once it was transmitted, they were just trashing it. And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll sell it to you because why would you want it? We made the case and we bought it and we put exclusives in there and we were able to sort of build this massive data set. And that was really obvious early on in our thesis. How we got into media was I started basically trying to get media press because I wanted to create momentum for my business. This was a point in time when venture capitalists discovered logistics and supply chain technology services, which had completely ignored it. It was a really boring industry before, but all of a sudden realized, hey, this is a really cool industry. It's really big. And so they started putting a lot of money in it. And there was a lot of press coming out about all these companies. And I was like, why can't we get press? And so even the local newspaper in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they didn't even pick up the story. I was like, okay, so I need to hire a PR agency. So I started talking to all of the PR agencies that worked in the space, and they kept turning me down. And finally, I got a hold of Convoy's PR agency, the one that Convoy is a logistics startup that raised a $4 billion valuation that went to zero. It went under. It was one of the largest VC-backed companies to fail in history. But I realized if they could make Convoy into this really sexy, disruptive business, which it really wasn't differentiated than the other freight brokers, that they could help my story in futures. And so I went out and I contacted them and the guy said, look, I'll take you on. It's $40,000 a month retainer and I'll do it. And I'm like, that's all of the capital we raised. At this point, we raised $2 million. I think we had like a million dollars left, but like half a million dollars a year to get press seemed excessive. And I think he was just trying to turn me down, reject me in a really nice way, we'll call it, expensive way. And I was like, look, I can't justify that. And he's like, if it were me, if it were my business, I think what you're doing is really difficult. I think I would hire my own blog reporter and blog about it on social media. So we put out an ad, a gentleman by the name Brian Strait, who was an editor at a firm called Fleet Owner, which is a part of Endeavor Media, applied for the job and he had an editorial background. And we brought him on and we told him, look, you need to write about trucking and what's happening, but you can't write about futures on a consistent basis. We need to make sure people are aware of what we're doing. No one's going to read articles about futures. It's a boring topic. It's a complicated topic. But you got to create enough interest in what's happening in the market. And if you do that and you write this content, then we can create an audience. And that was really the initial concept that we had. And that's what we started with. And for the first six months, he was the only writer. He went on vacation over 
a holiday. It was a late summer vacation, and there was a hurricane that was hitting Houston. I didn't want to bother him, but I had happened to run FEMA's disaster logistics as part of U.S. Express, which was my family's company. I had ran the disaster relief recovery logistics for FEMA, and I understood what was going to happen. And this was the first major hurricane to hit the U.S. shores in many years. And so a lot of the trucking and transportation industry was not aware of what was about to happen with the hurricane. But I had been there on site, knew firsthand what to expect, and wrote these articles, and the site exploded. We were getting about 40,000 uniques a month at that point. And these single articles, which were written in his name, were getting hundreds of thousands of page views. And I was like, wait, we're onto something. And we kept writing more content. It was raw, but it was real about what was happening in the industry. And I think there was this desire among participants to say, hey, this is a firsthand knowledge. This has an enormous amount of value. And we realized that this was something. In fact, we were doing our series seed right then. We were raising capital and the media business did not even make the pitch deck because we were not sure that it was real, that we wanted to do this, and we didn't have any advertising. We were simply doing it because it was creating interest to what was happening in the market. When you have something as big as a hurricane, it disrupts everything in logistics. And so it's a pretty big moment for creating volatility. And for someone that's trying to create a futures market and talk about real-time data in the industry, it was an important driver for those stories that were coming out of it. Some would say the perfect storm by the sounds of it. Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. You mentioned early on that you didn't have any media experience going into this venture, but you've already talked there about how your family business in the freight market was really critical for that point in time that you've just been talking about. When you then were thinking about, okay, if this seems to be working from the media side of things, how do I build a strategy or process that is repeatable where we can deliver these insights that I guess are predicated on having the actual freight experience? Was that then a case of we need to recruit more people who have the inside knowledge on these markets that then we can publish these pieces at scale? What were the early insights, particularly on the media side of the business, given your background? We did things that I would never get away with today. One of the things we realized really quickly was that cadence mattered. I remember having debates about whether we published a newsletter once a month or once a week or daily. And the problem is we had one writer and we realized that we needed more content. But we didn't have any money to really create normal context. But one of the observations that I had, had as a consumer of media is I want to go to a site and I want to have fresh content on there consistently. Every time I hit the site, if I go to ESPN.com, I wanted something new to be there. If I go to CNBC.com, I wanted something new. So we realized that we needed new and fresh content to really break into the media business. And so we had no budget, but we found these writers on Upwork that would do it. I remember we found one girl, it was $5 an article. She lived in the Philippines. She was just taking other people's content and basically rewriting stories about it. And then we were having to copy edit it. You do things that you would never do today. I would never do it. And that was how we started. We just wanted to create enough stuff. And I always tell early founders that are getting into media is that there are things that you can do as an upstart that I can never get away with today that I did years ago. And that was one of those things is the quality was not as important in those days. Remember, we didn't intend to be a media company at this point. We were just trying to create an audience and create an audience meant we needed information and we needed volume of information. And this was a way to create that. And so we ended up initially hiring a bunch of freelancers at basically paying them nothing. And then we realized 
starting leaning into the quality side of it. Because we were getting, some of the industry was sort of complaining. People were like, hey, this isn't accurate. What did you get this information? And I would look at it and be like, God, that's not accurate. And so we realized at some point we transitioned from, hey, we're doing this to build an audience to, hey, we really care about the product. And that's when we started hiring more qualified. JP Hampstead was our second writer we hired. He had a PhD in history on Chaucer, 16th century history was his PhD. We paid him $38,000 a year as our first writer, and he thought this was a great job. Knew nothing about finance or business, and became one of our best, most intuitive writers and analysts in the business, because he learned it the way we taught him. And that was really what happened. The other thing that I think we benefited from is anybody we hired that had an editorial or journalistic background was surrounded by people who had been in the industry. This is what has been distinctly different from Freightways versus all of our competitors is, it's very different to write content where you're doing traditional journalism, where you're interviewing participants in the market and you're asking them what's their opinion on a topic, to actually having people who have deep knowledge and expertise, and organic understanding of what's happening, and are actually identifying the stories before everyone else does. And I think that gave us an enormous edge in the fact that we had a lot of people from the industry that made up our team, not necessarily on editorial, but in the business that could inform sitting across from one of our journalists and saying, hey, this is happening, or I'm hearing this or something. Bloomberg does that. I mean, that's how they built their media business is that they were effectively in the financial market selling software services and platforms to the traders in the Bloomberg terminal. In fact, they got in trouble for this many years ago is they were actually looking at message flows to figure out stories. That gave them an enormous advantage over other media businesses is that they're in the story. And I think for us, it was the same, is that being from the industry enabled us to build something very successful out of it. And we were able to really take significant share because of it. I'm curious, you mentioned before that the media business didn't even, did not even make the pitch deck in terms of the fundraising. When you did eventually lean into it, was that all your own doing? Did you ever get the investor buy-in into building up the media side or building out the audience? Where do those dollars ultimately come from? Yeah, I mean, look, it came from venture capital that we raised. I mean, we've raised a total of about $60 million in venture capital and equity. We've done some debt. So we've raised about $75 million in total capital thus far. And as a business, venture-backed SaaS businesses or data businesses in their early foundation are burning cash. I mean, these businesses are not cheap to build. We had quarters where we've had positive EBITDA, but essentially our board's perspective is, hey, if you're sitting on a pile of cash on the balance sheet and you're not deploying that capital into growth, then actually we're missing out on upside that we could be having. So one of the things that happens, and as long as the unit economics work and as long as you have enough runway to succeed as a venture-backed business, if you have a balance sheet, because VCs are not, unlike a private equity firm, are not pulling money out of the business. They want to keep the money in the business to work for as long as possible. They want that money put to work. So ultimately, as a business, we have a finite amount of capital, and we have a choice between allocating towards media and towards data. Our investors, early on, were supportive of the media business because they realized it created a very effective top of funnel. And I think that's one of the powerful observations that I had was that up to about $10 million of ARR to a business that really wasn't spending any money in outside marketing is we were effectively all of our data sales 
were through our media business. And so we were not buying outside advertising. And most startups are paying Google, Facebook, LinkedIn in the early formation days a lot of money in customer acquisition. We were doing none of that. We were relying upon our media business to create top of funnel. And so our board was incredibly supported because that created a very efficient, we call LTV to CAC, which is long-term value versus customer acquisition costs. That was a very compelling multiple on our customer acquisition. So it made sense for the media business to be supported by our VCs. What's challenging is now it is a business of scale. We are not getting a ton of credit for our media business. So when we go out to talk to private equity firms, later stage growth firms, they look at the media business and say, we know we don't really invest in media businesses. We invest in data businesses and SaaS businesses, and we're okay putting a multiple of revenue on that business. We can't give you much upside on your media business. It's just priced differently. So in some ways, our data business has now exceeded the value proposition of the media business and in many ways has to demonstrate that it can stand on its own, which has created this really interesting environment for us in terms of how we think about investment. We are not putting a lot of for additional investment in the media business, not to say we're not focused on growing it. We're just not able to take a lot of capital. Capital's much more finite than it was two years ago. And so we're being much more disciplined in putting the capital into the data business and less so in the media business. When you think about that market dynamic, do you think that is appropriate? Do you think that audiences are undervalued and some of these SaaS businesses are overvalued? Because there are obviously reasons for those multiple dislocations and what you can raise at. But when you think about the market environment, do you think there's a dislocation there where audiences are undervalued or maybe the SaaS products are overvalued? I don't know that I would say SaaS is overvalued. Maybe two years ago it was when you have companies of not great unit economics and not great businesses that are trading at 25 times revenues, then certainly you could argue that at the upper end of those markets, that those businesses are overvalued. And then you can also go down to the opposite side is you had a lot of companies that didn't have recurring revenues that were valued as a recurring revenue business. There is obviously a lot of dislocation in financial markets a couple of years ago. I don't see that anymore. In fact, I think you could argue that some of those privately held SaaS businesses are actually undervalued compared to where the long-term trends are. But that's a different discussion. Silicon Valley has basically written off media businesses, period. They got excited during the BuzzFeed days and Vice days and really bid these consumer media businesses up to a point where those evaluations never made any sense to begin with. And I think they have largely discounted anything that not sufficient scale just doesn't trade. When you get into institutional capital, they're just not putting money into media businesses and either late stage or early stage. And so, and I see this more at flying because Freightways is not really an M&A business. We're not a roll up. We're an organic venture backed sort of growth business. But I have another venture in Flying Magazine, which is we've done 15 transactions and bought 35 brands out of it. And I actually like the fact that institutional capital (laughs) has not discovered the arbitrage of audiences. We're buying these things at two to five times EBITDA. And right now we're able to grow them. Oftentimes we see growth once we take over them. And by doing so, our underwriting philosophy, when you look at the total portfolio, even though we buy it two to five times, we're about three and a half years of, based on the run rate we're right now, it's about a three and a half year payback. It's an amazing return on capital. And so From my standpoint, I'm glad that there isn't a market for sub $10 million media businesses. And even you can go even high to $20 million. We did a deal, it's about $20 million in revenue, and it traded very much in that same category. 
What I like about it is that there isn't a very active private equity market because it's not inflating valuations. You can get some fantastic deals. And the way I think of it is, effectively, when I'm buying a media asset, I'm effectively buying the audience. And I'm using media, which is really subscriptions and advertising, as a way to finance the audience acquisition. So the media business should be profitable, should generate cash. I think I can grow that. We know we can grow it. And once we are generating cash flow and have the audience, then the question for us, very much like the Freightways model, is what services can we offer or products can we offer that audience that isn't media-centric? In other words, I want to grow the media business because that cash flow is really important to help fund audience acquisition. And from that, I can find other services that I can offer that audience. So in the case of Freight Waves, it's data. We've now built this really successful data business out of it. In the case of flying, we bought two e-commerce businesses and we bought a finance business. And so the idea is that we have this audience reading aviation content. We're the largest publisher in aviation. But the thing is that people that read the content is that they are really into buying and selling these products. Now, some of it may be lurking. If you don't have the money, you're reading about it, you're stuck inside the content. But there is a pretty active buy and sell market in these industries. And so it's part of that because we own all these aviation assets, which are really enthusiast-driven audiences. We can offer them services, and one of those was a finance business. So we bought a bunch of marketplaces. We bought, we And those acquisitions, we've acquired eight different aviation marketplaces selling used aircraft. And effectively, when people are buying an aircraft, they're thinking about buying insurance and finance and warranties and pre-buy inspections. There's no reason why we can't offer those services. So we bought a finance business. And as people are shopping for airplanes, what they're doing is they're coming to our marketplaces. We're now the second largest marketplace in the world for used aircraft. So they come to our marketplaces. The other thing is they're able to consume our content. Now, we've bought a lot of aviation magazines. Flying Magazine has been around since 1927. But we bought a bunch of other assets. Chances are that if there's an airplane, whether it was the 1941 Piper or a 1972 Cessna or a 2022 Cirrus SR-22, chances are that we've written about that airplane make and model in our library. And so we can create effectively a wall garden. So when someone's shopping for an aircraft, they can get pricing information about what the aircraft trades at. They can read all of the reviews and contents and accident reports about that aircraft. And then from that, then ideally they will go and finance that airplane through us. And so we're generating money in advertising, subscriptions over here to help bring new audiences, but ultimately we're really generating the upside in our finance business. It's a fascinating strategy. I just want to back up a few years and then we can go further into what you're doing now with flying in particular. You talked about you built freight waves organically with the data business and the media business. What itch were you trying to scratch with flying or what was the reason for going out and doing a very different model still in the media business, but with flying? And how did you choose that particular niche, if you like? Well, I knew that when it comes to media businesses, that there was this substantial arbitrage that we had created at Freeways. I just look at the unit economics of our SaaS business versus other SaaS businesses in the industry and realize that we have a very compelling unit economic basis on what it costs to acquire customers. Most SaaS businesses don't figure out content marketing until they get to about the 50 or $100 million AR business. And this is what I hear from a lot of private equity groups is it's usually the opposite, is they go and they do the traditional marketing because it's relatively easy to figure out how to do Google lead gen and drive traditional lead gen. 
it's very difficult to figure out the content piece. We we were backwards. We figured out the content piece before we ever figured out this outbound traditional marketing. And so from our standpoint, we realized that there was this massive arbitrage that existed with our business model. And I had this theory that you could take any kind of media asset and if you owned an audience, which is really what this is all about, anyone who's ever done this knows exactly what I'm talking about, is if I'm buying leads on Google and I stop buying leads on Google, my lead gen dries up. It's just how it works. If I lean into that, I can continue to pour money into it and I will see an acceleration of my leads. It's just pretty simple. And so you're effectively renting your audience. So every transaction, you're renting that that person's information. When you own an audience, it's quite different because you actually aren't paying anybody but yourself to generate those audiences. And if you have content that's constantly people are coming to read about or consume, they're essentially your audience that you're not having to buy or rent from someone else. You own it. And I think that was the epiphany that I always had was this is a model that could apply to any industry. And now it's one thing to say it and it's another to go do it. And with flying, I've been able to demonstrate that this works as well in that audience. But how I got into flying magazine was I'm a pilot and I flown airplanes since I was 13. I stopped flying at 20. I took a 20 year hiatus, did a bunch of business stuff, family stuff. During COVID, as a founder of a company, I had fired myself from every job. And you find yourself as a founder, you're really job, you're not good at many of them. And so I had hired a bunch of folks that actually are really good at what they do, much better than I am at these jobs. But one of the things you end up doing is you spend a lot of time with investors because you're raising capital. We got to the point we didn't need to raise money anymore because we had gotten to a business that was had enough sufficient capital and had really nice unit economics to where we weren't burning a lot of cash. I didn't need to spend time with investors to raise money anymore. And so I got really bored. This is COVID. And I decided to take up my old hobby of flying. So I started flying and I was reading all the aviation content and I was thinking to myself, man, this stuff sucks. I don't know if it's because I'm wearing a media hat now that I can't do a better job. Is it my bias because I'm a media executive or is it because these properties have gotten watered down over the last 20 years. I don't know. I haven't been reading them that many years. And so I reached out to the owner of Fly Magazine, Bonnier, and asked if they would sell it to me. I got this idea that I would buy it. And they reluctantly agreed to talk to me, and they did. And we did a deal. They're like, look, it's not for sale, but we'll sell it to you. And I bought it. And I initially thought it was just going to be a side hustle, just something fun to do. I'd have access to go look at the new airplanes and stuff. And But as an entrepreneur, I can't help myself but think about business I can't help myself to think about this arbitrage concept that I've been playing with in my mind about content-supported X, which is the Turning Group trademarked this, but it's something that I fundamentally believe in as well. And we ended up buying some real estate. We bought 1,500 acres in East Tennessee and started advertising it in our own magazine. And we got something like $28 million initially. We're going to break ground in like three months. We realize as a developer, that isn't the way it works now. But we thought we were going to develop this a lot faster than we did. And we had $20 million in pre-bookings and never took out an ad outside of our own magazine. And so we realized, hey, that there is a really compelling proposition for taking media and using that audience to sell them something else. So real estate was our first thesis. Then we bought two e-commerce businesses and we bought a finance business. And we've seen it work time and again. Yeah, it's fascinating. I sat across at a media dinner with your colleague, Preston Holland, who's on that side of the business. And I think the people around us were 
probably bored out of their minds as I was pestering him with questions about how financing works in the plane business. And he had the answer to everything, which was to my delight, probably to everybody else's chagrin. But it is fascinating to hear how you've basically executed that playbook and now you're looking to do it again. Is there any lesson about (laughs) the real estate play and the positives or negatives of real estate as that product that you attach to the audience versus something more finance or e-commerce oriented? Are there any early lessons that you're taking away? Because I think it's a very interesting playbook. And even while Chernin has done this to some extent and you're leaning into it, I feel like it's underrepresented as evidenced by what's happening in the capital raising markets and the lack of ability to raise just based off of an audience. I think it's the greatest arbitrage play of this decade is that if you own an audience, you can sell them effectively anything. And I think we've proven it through multiple categories, e-commerce, data SaaS, real estate, finance. It works. And the nice thing is this isn't a one-trick wonder, one-trick pony. It's actually working throughout the different things. Real estate is a very difficult... One of the things that was I remember doing the pro forma, I'd be like, it's a lot of money in real estate. You start to realize, whoa, there is a lot of ways to make money. Because effectively... The tax code is very beneficial to real estate, but also you're borrowing money. You're borrowing debt at relatively low rates. I mean, you're talking, when we did original model, interest rates were four and a half, five percent 5%. We were able to borrow money at 5.5% to finance the initial development of it. But there's a lot of arbitrage in that. I mean, we bought 1,500 acres, we paid 2,400 an acre, and we're selling these at 600,000 acres. There's a massive arbitrage between the buy and sell. Now, we're happy to put an airport there, so it's not as if... I'm just parsing it up and selling it. We have some development to be about spend about $20 million in development by the time we, we build the infrastructure. But what I realized in real estate is, yes, there's a lot of money, but there is an enormous amount of headaches. And it is a very long, not sales cycle, but development cycle. Is You've got environmental regulations, you have zoning regulations, like stuff that I was aware of, but I didn't realize how painful it would actually be to go through that process and how long it would take and how much government would influence the outcome and bureaucrats would influence the outcome. One form that's incorrectly filled out can push you back by 60 days because they kick it out and then you got to go back through the process. So these are things that we've learned. It was something that I thought was going to happen much quicker. One of the things that I like about e-commerce and finance, it's different, is that your sales cycle in finance is 45 to 60 days. E-commerce is almost immediate. I mean, this is an impulsive buy. And I like those types of things because you get much quicker feedback. The real estate stuff, in many ways, is a long-term play for us. So 20-year cycle, to build out 1,500 acres, you're talking 20 years, it will be there and it will make a lot of money in the long run. I still own the audience at the end of the day. But I also have found that stuff that has a faster feedback loop, a faster commercialization loop, tends to be incredibly attractive for this model. One thing I'm really curious about is you've been really acquisitive, particularly on the media side. You've just talked about why. Do you have to buy all of those magazines or with Flying being the heritage brand, perhaps that's good enough? What's the strategy behind being as acquisitive as possible and buying every audience you possibly can? Well, what we learned, I think surprisingly so, is that you think that Flying is the big brand because it's the biggest magazine in the space. You think that it has all of the audience. And what we learned through subsequent acquisitions is that just isn't the case. In fact, Plane and Pilot, which was arguably the number two rival for flying, we only found in terms of total overlap less than 20% of the audience of Plane and Pilot. We bought this on a single phone call. Is I reached out to the owner of Plane and Pilot and said, look, I'd like to buy it. We came up with a price. And then I told him on that phone call, I closed by Friday if he closed at my price. And we did. We closed four days later. We did negotiate the price on a 30-minute phone call, and then four days later, we acquired it. 
We did no diligence. I waived all the diligence. The company was in financial distress, so it was very obvious that they wanted to sell it. It turned out to be a fantastic acquisition for us. But one of the things that we really expected is probably a 70-80% overlap. We found that it was less than 20%. And so what I'm actually finding is that a lot of these media brands have very specific audiences and niches in them. And aviation is just like the car industry, just like the boating industry. Like there's a bunch of these little niches, and even though they're in the same category, they're not perfectly blended. And you have different socioeconomic blends. Plane of pilot is a bit down market from flying. Flying is aspirational. Plane of pilot tried to be aspirational, but it actually wasn't. And so we went back to the roots of saying this is focused on owner flown aircraft, and it's not meant to be aspirational. It's meant to be more how-to. And what we realized is that you can segment your content very differently by your audience type and try to lean into its natural origins, and you can get a lot across. You then serve these audiences. One of the things that has surprised us, though, is when we bundle the magazine, plane and pilot and flying being highly complimentary, it's about a 40% sell-through at checkout. So when we offer someone a flying magazine, we ask them if they'd also like plane and pilot, and we get about a 40% of those checkouts take a fully priced plane of pilot magazine. And that has been nice because that just increases the value of that customer. Plane of pilot's a higher margin product, frankly, at full price than what flying is because it doesn't cost us as much to fulfill it. And what we've learned is that bundling really works. And one of the things we've also been surprised about is that you would expect the advertisers to say, because you have a finite number of advertisers. Garmin is an example. Sirius XM is an example. You would think that they would say, hey, I already give you $100,000 a year. I'm not going to give you $200,000 a year for the second magazine. We've learned that that's not the case. What's actually happening is that the buyers want to spend more with us because we have all of these brands and we're able to segment out the audience between the data. It's easier for them to write one check than write six. And so you end up getting more of that. And so we actually see an expansion in advertising and expansion in bundling. And so... I believe if you're going to own an audience or you're going to be in an industry that you want to own as many of those brands that represent that industry as possible because the scale does matter. It matters to advertisers. It matters to consumers. One of the things that's been shocking when we buy these portfolios that have more than one brand, they don't bundle them together. They sell you one subscription for one magazine and they don't actually bundle across publications. I think that's nuts because there's so much missed opportunity there in doing so. When you buy the magazines, do you have any rules of thumb just in terms of how you run them economically? Are you willing to take a loss on the magazine just because you're able to advertise for the attached product services that you're offering? Any general economic rules of thumb that you have going into it? We're okay taking a loss for, say, 12 months. We know we're going to. Just migrating it to our audience platform, we use Omita. But that process of doing that can take a couple of months. So we're not investing in the old platform to drive subscriptions. We want to migrate it to our new platform. In doing so, you see some disruptions in subscription acquisition. So you see some churn. Good news about that is it bleeds off very slowly. It's not an overnight deal. And then we tend to invest in higher paper stock for print. We invest in more editorial, more content. So you initially, for the first year, you're going to be in the red on those properties versus what the company ran in it. You're going to see an acceleration in losses. If it's losing money, it's one thing. If it's profitable, then you're certainly going to see deterioration and in, in cash flows. Most private equity firms wouldn't do that. They would say, hey, we want to bleed this out as much as possible. We do the opposite. 
within two years, our goal is to double the size of the revenue. And this is all about revenue growth for the media business. So just keep in mind, we want the media business to stand on its own. We want it to be profitable. We want to double it in size within two years. And then we want to get to about a 50% contribution margin across the platform. If we do that, and we do that effectively, then we have a really nice perpetual machine that we can continue to develop new audiences, but also cash flow for the broader business that enables us to develop commerce. How much of these lessons learned through flying and the rest of the aviation industry that you've been in flow back into freight waves, or do you see them as very separate entities? It is interesting. I get to do a lot of playing with my business at flying because I don't have outside investors to deal with. This is in many ways a lab. I get to do things without a board. I don't have to do all that stuff that acquires budget. I can do an acquisition on a phone call. Freightways, I could never do that. I have to go to the board. It would take two months to get an approval. There are certainly things that we've learned through the aviation audience that we've applied in terms of how to provision content, but not as much cross-pollination as you would think in terms of here's an idea, we should take it over and implement there. Freightways is a B2B audience. People for the most part, are not enthusiasts in the freight. This is a functional business environment. Ways that the audience reacts to freight-based content is very different than the way it reacts to flying content. Flying is a predominantly a consumer or prosumer audience, whereas Freightways is strictly a B2B audience. And so you have a very different go-to-market function. And it's hard to sort of take a lot of learnings out of the flying market and apply it into the Freightways content because it's just a very different animal. One interesting thing about flying is that you have the background in the hobby, even though that audience exists without you. I think with Churnin, you see a lot of these audiences built organically, and then they'll attach the product to it. And here, it's a little bit different. You're acquiring the audience, but you still have that understanding of the market and what's going on with that particular hobby. How important is that? If you were to basically invest behind someone else doing it, and they didn't have any experience in whatever audience they were acquiring... Would that be a deal breaker for you? I think it'd be a pretty big red flag. I think the advantage that you point out, Matt, is I understand what it's these aviation enthusiast and pilot. I get it. Media businesses are hard work. These aren't easy things to do. I don't consider it work because I really enjoy the content, enjoy the audience, but it's a lot of work. I mean, if you look at the amount of hours that you have to invest in either freight waves. I grew up in the freight industry. You mentioned that my father started what became one of the largest trucking companies in America. I grew up in this industry and I absolutely love the freight industry. I live it, I breathe it, I'm all about it. And it isn't much about me and much of Freightway success is tied to my understanding of that business. I know who to hire and how to direct content. I think it's really important that the founder or the owner of those properties is very in tune with the audience's likes and dislikes. And I think that's what's enabled us at Freightways to be really successful is we build a product that's built for because of the understanding of how the industry works and the love for it. You did mention one thing, Matt, that I want to pull on is one of the things that I have struggled with in terms of acquisitions. And we look at probably five deals a week. I mean, we're very active and we get a lot of inbound. A lot of these are the creator models and the whole media business is built around a single creator. I struggle how to value those businesses. I don't have the churn-in perspective that I want to build a business around that creator because we have a very specific model in how we operate. It will be very difficult, I think, for us to execute what we're trying to do and then have a creator design. Those things work better when the investors are taking care of the business elements. And you guys have covered this in some previous episodes where 
the creator is effectively doing their normal thing, but the business stuff is handled out externally. I think for us, that would be much more difficult for us to buy a creator-driven business where you have the editor and creator is the business itself. I don't know how that would work for us. And so we largely passed on those types of businesses. I like legacy magazines because he's been around for 50 or 100 years or whatever, and it's almost impossible to kill them because so many people have tried, been unsuccessful at killing them. So I largely those are the right assets for us, long-term legacy assets that have many, many years. We also find an enormous amount of arbitrage in them because they are so unloved, you can buy them pretty cheap. You might not want to kill them, but how would you change them for the modern world? Because as you say, a bunch of these haven't necessarily been managed that well. They're in distress some of the time. When you pick them up, which are the pieces that you are particularly interested in and which are the ones that you might pair back thinking probably there's a physical digital element here? I like physical magazines. When I bought Fly Magazine, I was going to shut down the physical print. I'm a digital native. I knew nothing about media when I started Freightwaves and knew nothing about print magazines. But one of the things about print that I've learned to love is one is the audience loves it. It tends to skew to higher affluent, older, more established audiences is a typical print. There's also a younger Gen Z now. The vinyl is coming back. People are buying Taylor Swift records and vinyl. There is an element where the Gen Z, and I know you guys had Architectural Digest as a perfect example, is there is certain magazines that people want on their coffee table. And that was one of the things we did with Flying was we, we made it into a really, really high-end magazine. We bought it. It was paper had continued to deteriorate. We went full in opposite where we went from, hey, we're going to kill it to actually let's invest in this and make this to where it's the most beautiful aviation magazine out there. And let's triple the price for it. And let's see what happens. We found that we were able to get the business. I mean, Flying had lost money every single year in terms of print subscribers. Now, I had made money in advertising, but the print itself on a unit economic basis was losing approximately 7 to $8 per year for every subscriber. This math did not track for me. Think about it. The more subscribers I have, the more money I lose. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so what we said was we want this to be profitable. We want it to have at least a 50% margin on the print side alone. So the way we turn it to is the magazine itself should create a profit because your cost is tied to the number of subscribers. And people have done this a little different where they look at advertising. I look at it and say, I want my cost and my revenue to be tightly tied together. So we look at the print magazine as if every single subscriber should be profitable, create a margin, and then advertising is just sort of head type super margins out of it. And that's how we do it. But what we found is that some magazines, we want to make them aspirational. So with flying, we went way upscale. Other magazines, we realized this is a different kind of audience. We don't have to go high upscale with this audience. Maybe if we did, it would actually intimidate the audience. It would be unapproachable content. And so we try to understand which of those. So we love print. Print is an amazing asset. And what I've seen is if you have the right set of advertisers, print works really well with high dollar big ticket. It works really poorly with low ticket, high volume. Digital works much better in those environments. And so we're investing deeply in print to create something that we think has staying power, get rid of news content that's timely and really focus on content evergreen in nature. And then on digital, we're really emphasizing things that you guys have talked about is video and infographs and things that are really drive it, more content, more cadence, things like that, newsletters, just stuff that naturally does well in a digital environment are the things that we lean into. What I found is those are usually the 
for most publishers, those are the areas that they don't invest in. They don't know really how to start a digital business or really scale a digital business. Everything's programmatic. I fire programmatic the day we buy it. So the first things I do is I fire all the programmatic. And sometimes it's 40% of the revenue can be programmatic. It's gone. We fire all the agencies that do agency-driven subscriptions, which is a racket, and that thing should be shut down. So I fire those, and then we get rid of newsstand. Those are the three things we do immediately when we buy a print magazine. In many ways, those are the three things. That's the core business model of every print publisher, are those three things. We get rid of all of them. Yeah, fascinating when you boil it down to that. Those are very much the drags on the business, too, and it requires an operational expertise to be able to do them. But once you can figure them out, even if you can get a better economics, it makes a world of a difference. I'm a supply chain guy. There's no <laughs> yeah, excuse that's... for me not understanding <laughs> a new standard for supply chain. Very fair point. Very fair point. It's such a broken business model, the way that publishers have treated it. And effectively, they were of the mentality that they had to have these big audiences and had to have a high rate base. It was interesting. We bought Fly Magazine. The salespeople were like, I was like, we're going to increase the price of the magazine by like 3x. We're going to double or triple the cost to the advertisers. We have these really cheap ads. I call them shit ads. Get rid of all the shit ads that are in the back of the book. Pheromone ads. And these cheap watches, you'll see them in these magazines. Horrible. They don't pay anything. And they just dilute the value of the magazine. So I got rid of all those. And then I was like, you need to go tell your advertisers that we're going to increase prices to them. Wait a second. You're going to churn out two-thirds of our audience. And you're telling us to increase the price. I said, yes. I just don't understand. I said, go to Pilatus or Sirius. So Pilatus is selling seven, eight million dollar aircraft. Sirius is selling cheapest Sirius you can buy today is about a million dollars. And ask them, what do they want? They want 100,000 people reading the magazine or do they want the 100 prospective buyers reading the magazine? And tell them, we're going to focus on those 100 buyers because I promise you the 100 buyers that's not willing to pay $30 a year for a flying magazine either doesn't care about the content or isn't their kind of buyer that's going to spend a million dollars on an airplane. And it took about six months to get the advertisers to understand that, our salespeople to be able to sell it. And for the first six months, I thought we really screwed up because we lost a lot of revenue out of all of those decisions. And then we ended the year up 270% in advertising and subscriptions started to come back. And so now both those things are growing quite quickly. And so it's worked, but it took a lot of re-engineering of the way that the advertisers think about it and the way our salespeople think about it. Was there anything through that process where six months in, you started to do something slightly differently? Or was it just managing through the pain, like this will take time, we'll just stick with the strategy? Or was it just more of a communication thing as well? There were some darkish moments there. There was some moments where I think we really screwed this up. <laughs> we killed it. <laughs> but the thing that kept the business going was we were doing these real estate projects that we had announced. We were getting an enormous amount of response from that. And alone, we felt like, hey, this could subsidize the whole magazine. If this thing goes to zero, if we lose all of our advertisers and we have a finite number of subscribers that just pay to keep the lights on, if we can just sell real estate, we will be great. We'll make a lot of money doing that. And that was the reason we held into it. And in fact, we initially went quarterly. So we pulled it back and went quarterly. This is the other thing about the sales is the advertising. We're told to increase the rates and go to quarterly. It's like, everyone's like, you're nuts. But we went quarterly. But because we got such a high throughput on our real estate project, we actually went back to monthly. And the whole thesis was, hey, we need to be in front of these buyers, prospective buyers for real estate as much as possible. But what we realized out of that was it also brought more subscriptions with it in a yearly basis and advertisers started to really subscribe to it. So, so now we're not changing the cadence of how often a magazine arrives. 
we're not doing that kind of thing anymore when we buy it. We just have confidence that we've got a model that works after figuring it out. This has been an absolutely awesome conversation. We will close out with one last one just in terms of this audience theme, which I think you've laid out very well. And it's very interesting. I think you've identified the importance of interest in that particular audience and the activity that it revolves around. I want to go just a little bit more into the idea of what the actual product is or what the audience is revolving around and how aspirational that is. There are big buying decisions. When I think about another area where there's a lot of print magazines, there's a really dedicated class of people. It's the surfer market. And listen, I love surfing magazines. I love the idea of it, but they're just not very good consumers. So I don't think that would fit in this particular model. You tell me if that's wrong. And then just tell me anything else you think matters in terms of the value of what's on the other side of the magazine and what the magazine is talking about. I think ultimately, you have to understand how big your audience is. You mentioned surfers. Surfer's Journal is a great example of someone who's done it right, is they have effectively said, we're not going to depend upon advertisers. We're going to depend upon the audience to pay for it. I think the problem that you get in media is that everyone thinks that this is a business model that everyone must copy. I don't agree with that. I think there are different business models that work really well depending on what you're trying to optimize for. So in FreightWave's case, we don't charge for access to the website and the content. We have an advertising-driven model much more like Industry Dive does, except we're doing an enormous amount of research and analytics and commentary. We could easily turn that into a paid subscription model. We know we would do well with it, but when we look at the cost of the data business and average contract value on our data products, $33,000. So we're worried that if we go to a subscription product to pick up $300 per user, that we may miss out on a $33,000 potential subscriber on our data business. And therefore, we have elected not to do that. Now, if we were optimizing profitability on every single thing we did, we would do that. The model works really well for that particular business. When it comes to print magazines, we've learned that there are certain magazines that are downscale, where the audience is incredibly sensitive to price. And so you have to be careful what you put into the magazine there in terms of print quality and so forth. You also don't want to over-intimidate. One of the big complaints about flying when I bought it was that this is an aspirational magazine. It's for rich people. And this was a common feedback. It's just for rich people. It's out of touch. And for the first year, we thought, do we need to address this? And we thought about addressing it. When we bought Plane and Pilot and we bought a bunch of other aviation magazines, we realized, hey, wait a second. We should lean into the idea that this is an aspirational magazine. And it's okay to be for rich people. It's okay to be for something that's aspirational because that is what this stands for. And we leaned into that. And then we said, we also have products that are not aspirational. And so we've done a lot of price discrimination and how we price products. We have done a lot of audience segmentation and how we separate the different audiences there. And I think those are pretty important. And I think it's important also that... If you're in a business, you understand, you mentioned surfers, you need to understand your audience, how big it is, and its buying criteria and what products and services you could potentially own versus you could potentially offer advertisers. And I think that should lead your decisions to figure out what the opportunities are. Awesome. Well, this has been a masterclass on a few different sides of the media equation. Appreciate it, Craig. Loved what you've been doing for a long time and you continue to evolve. So appreciate all the insights that you continuously give and in particular on this interview. So thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, guys. All right. So what 
were your immediate reactions there? I loved it. This is going to be the beginning of a new year for our Making Media listeners. This is recorded at the end of the year for your Making Media hosts. And we ended on an absolute banger. Loved it. Yeah. What was your favorite insight, takeaway, whatever it might be? Oh, that's tough. That honestly, the flying aviation magazines that he was buying didn't have as much overlap as he had thought. Because learning about Craig, I'd always had a question in my mind, like, does he really need to go on this huge buying spree of all the magazines in the industry? Surely there's one, power laws tend to drive most media businesses. There's probably two or three that he needs to own and the rest of them he could probably just leave. But hearing that is really interesting, not least because in our own media business, we think about that a lot. We have an investor business audience and we often wonder about the overlap and we don't really know it that well. We have an intuitive feel for it, but we certainly don't have the data to back it up. And just hearing him talk it through was really interesting. And I imagine it's probably going to be kind of similar for us. Yes. Which is interesting to hear. The show that I feel like it's identified the most is actually this show where Craig, I actually doubt that he knows most of our other shows, which is amazing. But yeah, he's got such an interesting take on the whole industry I love that he brings the investing side of things, just in understanding where the market is trading some of these sectors or segments and audiences versus products. So I think somebody who has that type of mindset is always interesting. And anytime I hear him talk, he's usually bringing something that's happening inside a fundraising meeting or just bringing anecdotes of what the market looks like. And he has such an appreciation for that. And I think that's such a big piece of the equation. You can create this business, but how you fund it, what you pay for it, all those things are so important to what ultimately drives the financial success too. Yeah. And I definitely side with him when he talks about media for me has to come from passion or an interest in the, the sector that I'm going to be operating in versus the Sean Griffey. I'm just going to find the high value audiences and serve them content. I side with Craig on the piece of things, but they definitely felt similar to me. If someone wanted an introduction to this stuff, I would put this conversation we just had with conversation with Sean, Doug DeMuro and Kevin, that four-part series, if you wanted to listen to us for five or six hours, would be an amazing introduction to this content to commerce model of how to think about audiences in a profitable way. Yeah. The commerce to content model in this case too, where there's a few examples of that, which I think is just awesome. Yeah. And his team is consistently excellent just in terms of the interactions and how they think about things. I have thought quite a bit about magazines out there that would be ripe for this type of playbook. And it's always tricky for me. But I think his last point, just in terms of it doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all model when you're executing on this stuff. And a more consumer-driven media business is going to be different than prosumer or B2B. So that was a little bit eye-opening as well. I'm glad he laid out that it wasn't straightforward because you could get easy forget forgiven listening to that conversation and I certainly did midway through of like wow this guy's really got dialed in and he's like yeah for six months I thought that I just killed the magazine which had been running for a good almost 100 years so I think that insight is really interesting and then from the other side as people who have an audience with the media business at the moment but not necessarily the e-commerce or whatever the product side of it built out let me tell anyone out there who's under any false pretenses it's not as obvious as Craig made it be what you could or should be selling to your audience it's not immediately obvious what you should or the best value thing that you can serve your audience even when you've got one. Yes, that's right. He's very open about that too in terms of it doesn't always make sense up front. But I think there's definitely something to that and taking the long view. And I like that he at least had those rules of thumb that he could share in terms of the magazine business should stand on its own based on subscribers. So subscribers should basically be able to pay for the costs to produce the magazine. And then that makes advertising gravy, which actually makes it 
interesting in some ways because you could be a little bit more selective with the advertisers. So I love those type of general frameworks that you can use at the same time. And he's full of that in terms of thinking about in those type of terms and framing and all that good stuff. Yeah. And then when I buy these magazines, these are the things that I'm going to get rid of first up. And here's where we're going to make the money out of this thing. And this is how we're going to bring it to a, a profitable way on based on subscriptions and the print product. And then we're also going to sell the audience, et cetera, et cetera. People who are very straightforward often sound simple, but that simplicity has been learned through a bunch of complexity. Didn't even start off as a media operator at all, which gives me some hope over 10 years ago, however long it was. Yeah. It's also funny that he says he never thought that he would be good at media but I tend to find him to be very refreshing in the way that he approaches things. He almost feels like a natural. How much did you have to deal with freight waves when you were in this side of things at Goldman? So they were a decent, more than decent, I would be understating it, but they were one of few industry sources and people that were writing specifically about the industry, people that had a lot of information about private businesses. So they covered that aspect of the market really well, in addition to everything that was going on macro-wise. So I dealt with them a decent amount. The journalistic relationship was always something I appreciated and definitely not something that I got from other publications which was always something that I looked fondly of. So they were definitely relevant. I always thought about it as the media arm. I was always interesting and interested in what they were doing with the different products and the futures market and other types of software. That always piqued my interest. But it's been cool that it's come full circle and being able to continue to watch it more closely on this side of things. I would be curious to learn a bit more about how the futures market and the data they were collecting up front, because that's what they thought the business was, how much that has changed, or if it's totally unrecognizable to the software product that they currently sell alongside the media business at FreightWaves. And also, we've talked a bit on this show over the year about how hard it is to raise money for a media business. (laughs) He's the other side of that, where you can raise money and it be a decent business. I don't know if that proves that point, though, because I think that he raised money for a software business and media just happened to be attached to it. Good point. Especially as things have gotten later and later, it's much a small piece of it. And then doing pilot on his own. I don't know if it actually proves anything or not. That's true. Which is interesting. Yeah. And he certainly looks like he's having more fun without the investors. than <laughs> yeah, yeah. No surprise there. <laughs> the flexibility and the freedom. It's neat to have somebody doing that. This is going to be a ridiculous (laughs) comparison, but I was saying in our internal chat how the neat thing about what Bezos was talking about in his interview with Lex Friedman, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. I think we all know who he is. (laughs) Was that he's spending his time trying to get people to space and having people that have a lot of success under one thing and then have a little bit more freedom to do the next thing and... They're not worried about the same things as with their first venture. There's something neat about that and seeing people really have ultimate flexibility when they're doing their next thing, Elon being in that category too. Yeah, nice analogy. Just on that total sidetrack, Jeff looked too happy for me in that interview. I was surprised at how much smiling and laughter there was. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. If you go back to the early Amazon interviews, he's very much the same way. He has this just (laughs) excitement in terms of what he's doing. And once they get that across... So I don't know if it's too different. Just without the biceps. Yeah, without (laughs) whatever is going on there. (laughs) Without the health adjustment. But yeah, no, I think there's some parallels to what was going on. Maybe just a little bit more wisdom in his voice. Fair enough. The other very cool thing to come out of this conversation that you just heard is that Craig listens to making media while flying his own plane across the US, I presume, and maybe internationally. If anyone else has got a better story than that, I'd like to hear it. But that at the moment is 
number one in my rankings of making media listeners and where you listen. Very, very cool to hear. I agree. Yeah, I should have passed on that. If I didn't already, I can't remember if I did pass on that. You didn't. I promise you, you didn't. It was all the better coming from the source directly. Yes, pretty neat. I'm not going to lie. That was a pretty cool anecdote. And I'll have to tell people, it's one of those things where sometimes when you're on the receiving end of things, you realize how cool they can feel. So therefore, if you have opportunities to deliver those things, you should do it as well. So I have to think about different spots and areas, cool places I am when I'm listening to the things and deliver that message. True. Nice, deep, thoughtful message to close this on. Amen. Well, that was excellent. And Greg's an interesting one. He's done a few appearances. You can read some of his stuff he's posting on Twitter and always has some interesting insights. So he's one to follow and we appreciate him taking the time with us. Definitely. Go follow him and we'll see you next week. 